Uh, good morning, church. Great to be with you. I do hope you have your Bible. Uh, Josh didn't tell you where to open it because even he didn't know. Uh, we're going to open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke, that's in the New Testament towards the back. Skip past Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, you'll find it before John. Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading from verse 18 to 27. That's, somebody might like to put it in the, uh, the comments down below. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. And this is Peter's moment where he realizes who Jesus is. Let me read it. Once when Jesus was praying in private, he asked his disciples who were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Well, a couple of years ago at a church I was at previously, uh, we surveyed our friends and family with this question. We asked them, the idea of God would be good news if. The idea of God would be good news if. And we gave them however long they wanted to answer that question. Many answers came through to that question, and a lot of them were like this. The idea of God would be good news if he helped me in a difficult relationship. The idea of God would be good news if he answered prayer more quickly. The idea of God would be good news if there was world peace. Or the idea of God would be good news if he made an actual difference. And this is my favorite way of putting it. The idea of God would be good news if he had a net positive effect. I love that. Uh, all of these could probably be summed up with this final answer that came through, which was, if he could make our lives better. If he could make our lives better, or if he could make our lives more happy, happier. I'm told at the beginning of Vine Church, uh, at the beginning of our year every year at Vine Church, uh, we look at Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, and in particular, what it means to follow him. And so, like Josh mentioned, next week he's going to be kicking off a series through Matthew's gospel, looking at the life of Jesus. But the question would remain, well, why would you do that? Why would you waste 13 weeks of your life or spend 13 weeks of your life looking at Jesus, this person in history who claimed to be God? Why would you do that? I want to answer that question today. I want to speak into the value of God. What is the value of God? And perhaps you've had this idea yourself. You know, the idea of God would only be good news if he made my life better. Perhaps there's many reasons you've put off looking at Jesus. 
Perhaps there's been bad experiences in your life. Perhaps people have said stuff that doesn't sit well with you. Perhaps you've never heard, never heard a compelling argument as to the value of God, who he is. Perhaps you have thought, God would be good news if, my, if, if he made my life better, but he hasn't, so I don't really give a rip. Maybe you've thought that. I want to speak into that thought this morning. So firstly, I think it is true that we all have a desire for a better life, don't we? And maybe you've thought, you know, is pursuing happiness wrong? What is the better life that you think about? What does a better life look for you? Let me give you some concrete examples. I imagine for some of you, it is working less. You think, the less I can work, the better my life is. For, other of you, for others of you, it's the more I can work, the better my life would be. The more money I'll have, the more opportunities I'll have, the more power and prestige. I want a promotion. I need a job. Maybe that's you. For some of us, uh, having more things in life is going to give us a better life. More music, more books perhaps, maybe the latest phone. For others of us, having less stuff. Maybe you've spent a bit of time this summer already Marie condoing your house, trying to clear out your life from clutter so that you can have less and have a better life. For some of us, it's watching more sport on TV. Love the cricket. More cricket, please. For others of us, it's less cricket, please, in our life. But more seriously, a better life for you might be a return to full health. Maybe a better life for you is reconciliation with a friend. Maybe it's a better future or a better environment for your kids or for the next generation. Whatever it is, I'm certain, because I know I've experienced it myself, that many of us lie awake at night, frustrated, perhaps even angry at God because of the life that we've been dished up. Or maybe we're just continually searching with a bit of an ache, looking for that thing that will fulfill us and give us a better life. That's what life is all about, isn't it? Pursuing a better life, a happier life. And whether you're a Christian, whether you're a person of another faith, whether you're not a Christian at all, I think this is common to all of us. In fact, it's common from the East to the West, across, across the world, across history. The Dalai Lama, he says this, the purpose of our lives is to be happy. Audrey Hepburn, the screen legend from the golden age of Hollywood, she says the most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. It's all that matters. And as we consider this universal scope of the good life, the better life, you know, I think it's a common misconception that it's an unchristian thing to pursue happiness. We think surely there's a more moral pursuit. Surely the pursuit of happiness is irreligious. Maybe we've felt guilty or ashamed when we found at the bottom of our desires the pursuit of happiness above all other things. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, physicist, philosopher, and Christian theologian, writing in the 17th century, he says this, All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. He writes, The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the, desire, is the same desire in both, attended with different views. He goes on, The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every person, even of those who hang themselves. It's a bit of a macabre thought, but it's true, isn't it? What's interesting, I think, about his statement is that he doesn't judge it. He doesn't make a moral judgment about it. He says, no, this is just human nature. This is how we are. 
every step of the human will, we do not take the least step but to the object of happiness, he says. What's interesting, and this may be new for you, and this is a myth I want to bust this morning, is that the Bible God himself is not against our happiness at all. He's not against a better life. In fact, God is, as he's presented in the Bible, God is not a killjoy at all, but quite the opposite. In fact, I want to say this this morning. Everything that God has ever done has deep and satisfying happiness for us in mind. Everything that God has ever done has deep and satisfying happiness for us in mind. That's why he's done it. Let me give you just a couple of examples throughout the Bible, if you don't believe me. People often think God was a killjoy from the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. What was he doing there? But if you relook at that story, if you read the account of creation, uh, when God made the world, what's his criteria for the stuff he was making and the stuff he was putting in the world? He said, he looked at it, and it was very good. That was his criteria, that everything was very good. We're even told that trees that he made were not just good for food, but were pleasing to the eye. That's how much his concern for your happiness is. He's, he's an aesthete. God is the original aesthete. The Ten Commandments, we probably think this is where things get serious. No, this is where God gets very serious about our happiness. We actually find there that all of the commandments come with a promise. The, fir- the first commandment, or one of the commandments, sorry, honor your mother and father, Moses tells the people, honor your mother and father so that it might go well with you. That's what Moses says. Net positive gain is what God is after in your life. They're not just rules for rules' sake, but so that it may go well for you. Then you think about Jesus and his words. Jesus turns up, God comes and does his Sermon on the Mount. This is his uh, keynote speech, his TEDx, if you will. And what's the first thing Jesus says? He opened his mouth, Matthew 5.2 tells us, and he says, blessed are, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled To be blessed is to be deeply happy, to be richly happy. The point is, it is not unchristian, it is not irreligious. You should not feel guilty and ashamed for the pursuit of happiness, for the pursuit of a better life. In fact, it is central to God's life, central to God's concern for your life, is that you find true happiness, that you find a true and better life. So then, what is the better life? That would be the next question. What is a better life? What will make us happy? Well, the typical things we pursue uh, would be, you know, health. We've talked about that this morning. Love, money, power, success and achievement. They're the typical things we pursue, don't we? The problem with these things is that they all let us down. Again, I could give you some examples. I'm sure you've experienced some of this in your own life already. Uh, Think about power. Most researchers say power doesn't make your life more stressful. It makes your life more stressful. You will have more gray hairs on your head the more responsibility in life that you're given. Think about money. I have found even with the small amount of money that I have, the more money you have in life, the more worry comes along with that. Certainly, the further you have to fall, the more money you have. I was thinking about this even this week. We were holidaying in Avalon um, like we planned to last year before COVID hit. We actually got there this year. 
But somebody told me on like my third day we were there that Avalon was a black spot um, for the new COVID outbreak. And I thought, you know, the thing about COVID, one of the things it's taught us is that it's completely indiscriminate, isn't it? It doesn't matter where you live, how much money you have. The peninsula is a very uh, wealthy place to be, but money can't save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Money is not where you will find safety and security. The same is true with success or achievement, of course. I love this quote by Jim Carrey. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. A friend of mine experienced this recently. He said, Matt, I found the job at the place doing exactly the thing I always wanted to do that I'd studied for all these years. And then I I realized it wasn't all... was cracked out to be. There were HR issues, there were culture issues, there were political issues, and he's left the dream job. It was a shock for him. It was crushing for him. Madonna, if anyone can tell us about what it's like to be successful, Madonna, uh, you know, the queen of pop for the 20th and the 21st century, she says this, I'll read a little bit and then the quote will come up on the screen. My driving life comes from a fear of being mediocre, That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. She says, because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. She's being very honest with us there, isn't she? She's saying, my success does give me a sense of value and significance but it only lasts a moment, an instant, and then it evaporates. It's not lasting. So if you try and find your worth in it, it will never satisfy. Take it from Madonna. So with all these things, power, money, success, we're trying to fill an internal and eternal void that just can't be filled. What about love? You're all hanging out for it. Love is where we all actually go, isn't it? I was actually, I I read a story not too long ago uh, about a woman who put her hope in children. She thought that will make me happy, having children. She found it difficult to have kids. And, but she had had this dream of having them and giving them a wonderful life. That would be the answer to all of her problems. But actually the author said at the end of this story that I was reading, he said actually getting her heart's deepest desire may have ended up to being the worst thing that could have ever happened to her. Why is that? Well, we know people like this, don't don't we? They have this pursuit, and then it can actually make them a little bit crazy. And in her case, it ended up damaging her relationship with her kids and her kids themselves. She put expectations on the kind of relationship she wanted with her kids that they couldn't reciprocate. She put expectations on her kids and the kind of life that they would have that physically and emotionally they could not live up to. Her overprotectiveness, her fears, her anxieties, her need to control every detail of her children's lives made the family miserable. You might know something like that. The point is we can't risk putting the weight of our happiness on other people, on love on power, on money, on anything. It's, it's a, a chair beneath us that cannot bear our weight. 
Of course we can be happy and thankful for these things, can't we? But you can't base your happiness on it because you can't control a response. You don't know what's going to happen. Those things can let you down. So our question this morning has got to be, well, how do you find it? How do you find the better life? How do you find happiness? Well, this is where we come to the account of what Jesus said to his followers. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Let me just read to you two verses from that passage again. And Jesus said to them all, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Let me just draw your attention to a couple of things going on in that passage. Firstly, Jesus says a better life doesn't come from an easier life, does he? He couldn't mean that. The cross is an instrument for execution. So surely an easier life is, is not the way to a better life. But secondly, and most importantly, Jesus says the better life doesn't come from focusing on yourself. Jesus, notice he says, deny yourself. This is not about self-flagellation. It's not about denying yourself happiness because he says we want to save our lives. That's, that's the hope. He says, deny yourself yourself. He says, instead, follow me. What's he talking about? Jesus says the number one problem that we have in finding happiness is where we look for it. The number one problem we have when looking for happiness is where we look for it. Jesus is counterintuitive on this point. We think the happier life, the better life, will come from focusing on ourselves, putting ourselves first, putting ourselves at the center of our lives. Our world screams this to us every day, doesn't it? I was thinking, you know, the algorithms that we've created for our digital lives are built around this idea of giving me more of what I like. That's what the algorithms that we've set up are, are set up to do. We think the happier we'll be happier if we have a better life if we're more self-focused. But notice this. Jesus doesn't point to you and he doesn't point to happiness even, as if happiness is something you can get itself. No, Jesus rather points to himself. Jesus says, follow me. He says, if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, that is if you give up everything else, all those things we've spoken about, lay aside every other pursuit, and what pursue him, pursue me, you will find life itself. Think about this for a moment. Imagine anybody else in your life saying to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lose your life for my sake and you'll find life. Imagine anyone else. Some people think Jesus is just a great teacher. If a, if a teacher gets up in any classroom you're ever in and says, I want you to lose your life for my sake and you'll find life, you need to get out of that classroom. If a, if a, a friend, a flatmate a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a partner, a husband, a wife ever says to you, lose your life for my sake. It might come to that. Maybe one day you would die for that person. But if they said each and every day, lose your life for my sake, you'd say, you're crazy. You're crazy. Who could ever say that? Only someone who thought they're more valuable than life itself can say that. Only someone more valuable than life itself would be worthy of losing your life for. 
Jesus is more valuable than life itself. Jesus is more valuable than life itself. He's not just more valuable than some things in your life. He's more valuable than life itself. This single sentence, verse 24, for whoever would save his life and lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. No words are given more ink and parchment in the gospel than those words. Out of all the words Jesus ever said, these ones are recorded more than ever. And they're extreme. This is an extreme claim. He is saying he's the treasure of great prize. Go and sell everything else and buy him. Here's what Jesus is saying. This is what God has been saying since the beginning of the Bible right through to Jesus himself. God himself is the all-satisfying object. God himself is the all-satisfying object. Jesus is saying, I am your happiness. I am your better life. Listen, God is not good because he gives us things. God is not good because of, he changes our circumstances. God is not good because he gives us a better health or makes us more rich or coordinates things in our life so that they go more smoothly. God is good news because he makes my life better by giving me himself. And if all he ever gives you is just himself, you have the best life. Jesus recognizes that nothing in this world is big enough to fill your heart. He says you can try and put the whole world inside your heart. It'll just rattle around in there. Everything in this world, if you accumulated it, it wouldn't be big enough to fill up your heart. Jesus offers himself because he knows he's the only thing that can truly fill your heart. He's the only thing that can really make you happy. Let me ask you this. Do you want a God that has to give you stuff to make you happy? Or do you want a God who is satisfying enough that you don't need anything else? Now, the final question, and I want to do this very quickly. Why is Jesus able to fill our hearts? Think about love for a moment. The problem with trying to find a better life by placing our happiness in human love is it's not always reciprocated. We're not sure whether somebody else's love is equal to ours. There is an infinite number of answers to the question of why Jesus fills the heart. But just think about love with me for a moment. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he writes this in 1 John 4.10. He says, This is real love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is, what is he saying? He's saying, look, God loved us even before we thought about loving him. God loved us even before we knew we needed to be loved by him. And if you know God's love, you never have to fear it, whether your love will be reciprocated or not. That's God's concern. But he first loved us. That's where you can find true love. A love that's initiating a love that initiated before we even asked, a love that's committed to us, a love that died for us. And this is not made up, this is true. Jesus did this for you when he came into the world, when he suffered and died, before we asked, before we deserved it. And when you know a love like that, it can be all satisfying. It can be completely filling and freeing. It can change whatever circumstance you're in because you have him and he is love. That's why you can and should forsake all others and follow him. Let me ask you today, what are you going to do about it? I want to finish with a really quick story. You may have heard this story. It's a, uh, there was a guy called Stephen Thomas 
who got paid in 2012 in Bitcoin for some work that he did. Uh, here's his face on the screen. He got paid 7,002 Bitcoin, which at the time was only worth about $7,002, I guess. But now, about 10 years later, it has a net worth of about $250 million. But here's the thing. He lost the little bit of paper with the password. He lost it. And he's tried eight times out of his 10 times to access it. He cannot remember the password. I was listening to this on the radio. They were talking about different ways he might be able to go about getting that money. But he's given up. What would you do if you knew you were that close to a better life? What would you do if you knew you were that close to a happier life? I reckon you would give up everything else you were doing and you'd pursue it. You'd figure out a way to get that $250 million. We're going to sing right now about God's love. We're going to sing about how deep the Father's love for us. Before we do that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, show us the better life. Make us deeply happy as we value you above all else. In your name we pray. Amen.